All right. Well, good morning. It's good to see Kai. It's good to see so many here. I was worried I'd be preaching to just the worship team. I was willing because we all need a little bit more Jesus, right? But glad that so many could make it. Weathered the storms and made it in. And for those of you who don't know me by chance, I am Joey Weber. I'm the associate pastor here. And today we're going to be working through Acts 18. So if you just want to head over there, I'm going to read the whole passage right at the start here. And then just kind of grab onto a thread through it. Um, So if you head over to Acts 18, that's where we'll be for the remainder of the day, uh, morning. Um, But I do encourage you, there are many themes that can pop out. As Matt and I were kind of looking at it and talking about it, there's a lot lot of stuff going on in Acts 18. And so I encourage you, whether in small groups or just on your own, to read through it and dig into it and just see what what God speaks to you through it. Or even go out and listen to other pastors. Uh, That's perfectly okay with me, by the way. Like, I love to hear when people are like, I was listening to this pastor. That's what we do, too, to prepare. We're listening to other pastors. We're getting encouraged by people. Two of our other network churches actually went through Acts as well last year. And so there's some great messages out there on Acts 18, especially on all of Acts. And so they grabbed a hold of some of these other themes and preached on those. And this is what I've got here is just what I felt God leading me to as I read through this passage. So follow along as I read our chapter this morning, and then I'll go ahead and make some points throughout it as we go through. So Acts 18, starting at verse 1, says, After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. And he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently came from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And he went to see them. And because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade the Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, your blood be on your own heads. I'm innocent from now on. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. And he left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord, together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking, and do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in the city who are with me. And he stayed a year and six months, teaching the word of God among them. But when Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal, saying, This man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. But when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, If it were a matter of wrongdoing or vicious crime, O Jews, I would have reason to accept your complaint. But since it is a matter of questions about words and names and your own law, see to it yourselves. I refuse to be a judge of these things. And he drove them from the tribunal. And they all seized Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him in front of the tribunal. But Gallio paid no attention to any of this. After this, Paul stayed many days longer and then took leave of the brothers and set sail for Syria. 
and with him Priscilla and Aquila. At Chancheria he cut his hair, for he was under a vow. And they came to Ephesus, and he left them there. But he himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they asked him to stay for a longer period, he declined. But on taking leave of them, he said, I will return to you if God wills. And he set sail from Ephesus. When he had landed at Caesarea, he went up and greeted the church and then went down to Antioch. After spending some time there, he departed and went from one place to the next through the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. Now, a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in the spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when he wished to cross to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. When he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed, for he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. All right, so for today, the topic that I'm going to be focusing on through Acts 18 is multiplication. Multiplication of the gospel through this. And I'm going to start off and I'm going to tell you a little story about my, my life before Jesus, because we all love those stories, right? When I was graduating high school, I decided I wanted to be a lawyer. Why a lawyer, you say? Well, because on my high school brain, I thought lawyers get paid to argue with people, and I'm really good at arguing. So this is what I want to do with my life. Then I realized how many years of college it took to be a lawyer, and that wasn't going to happen. So then I decided to just go to DMAC and just try to figure out what I want to do next. And I started just taking a handful of classes across the board, from business to sociology to psychology. And after every class, I was like, this is what I want to do with my life. I want to be a businessman. I want to be a sociologist. I want to be a psychologist. All Every single class, I was like that. And then I took accounting. And some of you are probably thinking, I bet you never wanted to be an accountant, right? Actually, I did. Like, it was... For some reason, like, it just made sense and numbers, and I I liked it. And it might have had something to do with the fact that my professor was this really intense former Marine. And so he he could even make accounting just, like, really intense and exciting and would tell stories. And so I was like, yeah, I want to be an accountant. This is awesome. And I did okay for a while. But something happened along the way. I stopped going to class, and I started partying a little bit too much. Now, by this point, I was in intermediate accounting and really thinking, this may be what I do with my life. I'd taken a handful of classes, and I was getting into the higher level. But when you get into higher level of classes in college, this is for our high schoolers and even some of our college kids, just a little PSA, you really need to go to class to pass and learn. So I was failing horribly, getting like 10% on tests and failing every assignment, skipping lectures. And it came to be the end of the semester, and I knew I was failing. And the teacher asked to meet with me after class. And so he explained to me how bad of a grade I had. Like, it wasn't even close to an F. Like, it was just so bad. And then he went in and explained just how bad at just accounting I was, too. Like, he's just like, you're just not good at this at all. 
You keep taking classes, but you're not good. And he goes, I will, I will make a deal with you. If you promise me that you will never take another accounting class again, I will give you a D. Just so I don't, I don't want you to have to retake this. I don't, I just, just promise me. Well, it was good news to me. I can get a D. D's get degrees. I'm out. I tell you all of that because I often joke that I became a pastor so that I wouldn't have to do math. Like that's, that's my fallback, right? It turns out there's actually a fair amount of math and accounting and all that stuff, even in pastoral ministry, budgets and all of that. So I didn't even get away with it. But there's also a different type of mathematics within the church. And that's what we're going to look at today. We're going to look at multiplication and how that is the key to gospel progress. And in this chapter, we can see gospel multiplication throughout. That is the thread that I, I see throughout this chapter. And so by the end of the chapter, we're going to see that instead of just Paul's missionary team, we will now have three different teams all out on mission, all working to proclaim the gospel. And we're going to focus on that and just see how Paul was able to tap into that. I have a passage from 2 Timothy I'll have up here. 2 Timothy 2.2 says, What you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. This is Paul writing Timothy years later. But it's this idea of multiplication. Four generations of disciple making in one verse. What you have heard, what you have heard from me in the presence of people, entrust to faithful men who are able to teach others. He's saying, it's not just me, it's not just you. We need to be, keep pushing this so that they, and more and more and more, can go out. So first up in our first three verses, we can see multiplication through community. The first thing that Paul does when he gets to a new place is he seeks out community. Paul understands the importance of community, especially in a place like Corinth. I have a map of Corinth up here. Um, some of you may remember last year we worked through 1 Corinthians. And in that series, we, we talked about just how messed up a place Corinth was. But we also reminded us quite often as we're going through 1 Corinthians. We, when we read passages and read how messed up certain churches were in the New Testament, let's not get judgmental. Let us remember it's just a different kind of messed up. As Andrea was praying, you know, I just thought about that. Like, it's... We are all broken, and that is the purpose of this. And so just what a beautiful picture of brokenness Corinth truly is. Um, but some of the things to kind of point out for Corinth, just to remember how messed up it was and how dark of a place this was for Paul to reach and why he would need this community. So first off, in Corinth, there was a temple of Aphrodite. Now, Aphrodite was the goddess of love and war. And so... The temple employed a thousand prostitutes. That was their profession. And they were employed by the temple. Worship to Aphrodite was very sexual. So men and women, husbands and wives, they would go off to temple to worship Aphrodite and would engage in ritualistic sex with these prostitutes. That was, that was church for them. 
So that's a little messed up. Then we also had something called the Itzmian Games. Anyone a big fan of the Itzmian Games, right? Right? No? Well, that's because the Olympics beat them out. It was the same thing back in the day. It was the Olympics and the Itzmian Games. There was kind of like the competing all-world thing, games at that time. And so the Itzmian Games brought in athletes from all over the world. Different religions, different cultures, different moral standings. And all of these athletes are coming. Think of like Roman gladiators and any movie that you can imagine of gladiators and first century athletes. That's what's going on. And so they just jump straight into the sexual activity and the immorality that's already going on in the country. And then just a third reason, I have a more zoomed in picture here. You could see from the first picture that Corinth was kind of nooked up to the top of that big landmass. And so before, right here, we have a, a canal that you can see. This is actually the Itzmiths. That's where the Itzmian games came from. But before this canal was dug out, sailors had to go all the way around that landmass to get to Athens and Rome, which was the hub of trade in that first century. So the Corinthians cut this canal through their country so that sailors could have a faster route to get to Athens and Rome. You know, again, I'm not casting judgment on sailors, but again, like we just think of first century sailors traveling. And now they're in a place like Corinth with the games and the temples and the immorality and it all just came into a big melting pot of immorality. All this together tells us that Corinth was not going to be an easy easy place for Paul to reach. I heard one pastor refer to it as the modern-day Las Vegas. That was actually the title of his sermon, The Gospel Goes to Vegas. So with that all around him, Paul knew that if the gospel was going to go forth, he needed some community. He couldn't, he can't do this on his own. He needed people praying for him and supporting him and standing side by side with him. And those people were Aquila and Priscilla. Now, these two individuals are incredible role models for us. This is a husband and wife team of disciple makers who just overflow with hospitality, godly training and encouragement. And we're going to talk more about their training at the end of this chapter. But right here, we see this, this hospitality overflowing from them. These two are essentially refugees. They've been kicked out of Rome because they were Jewish. And the ruler didn't want the Jews in Rome anymore. So he threw out all of the Jews. So they're on the run and they've ended up here in Corinth. And they meet Paul. Most likely in the synagogue. And they welcome him into their home and their business. See, Paul needed to have a side gig besides just traveling around being a missionary. Again, because of what was going on in Corinth, a lot of religious charlatans would come to Corinth peddling whatever religion they could think up, but then asking for money with it. Like, oh yeah, this, my God says you need to give me money. And so people were coming in saying that. So Paul had to set himself apart from that. So he couldn't ask people for money. So he needed a side job of tent making in order to support his missionary activities. And that's Aquila and Priscilla were also tent makers. So they all just moved in together and lived together and worked together. Paul would live with these two for a year and a half. And they would eventually set up a house church in their 
home. One of the best things that we can do for our understanding of the gospel is to surround ourselves with people who think and look differently than us. I think of our own elder team. On our elder team, we have a businessman, a camp director, a college professor, a CPA, and a police sergeant, ages 52 to 27. That's awesome. We've talked about before how we have, uh, how every Monday we read through the passage for the week and we talk about the sermon outlines, and these men will look at it and things will pop out and experiences that they've had, that illustrations and analogies and just their understanding of how they've read this, it will come into this and it just flows out in this elder meeting. And it's incredible because they see things that I, I don't necessarily. But my surrounding myself with people who think differently, it doesn't stop there. When I'm preparing for a message, if I can find a solid female teacher or Bible study leader, I love reading or listening to that. Jen Wilkins, when we were going through Judges, Matt and I were listening to Jen Wilkins over and over again because she's solid. And we know that what she preaches and teaches is truth. And just a female perspective on these passages, which is so enlightening to us. I sit with my wife when I prepare for this. I'm like, what, you know, what came up in your Bible study? What are some topics and themes? Because the reality is we all have different life stories. And we do this because of multiplication. This is the importance of community in order for multiplication. If I'm only reading this myself and preaching what I see in it and how I think, I'm only going to reach people like me. When I surround myself with people who think and look differently, my Bible just gets so much bigger. We all have different life stories. We each bring different experiences when we come in here. We all come to this book with our own lenses on, and when we read it, we put our own preferences and thoughts into it. And when we seek out community, it just opens us up to what other thoughts and feelings come out. And so that's, Paul knew that. And that was the multiplication through community that he wanted to tap into. Next up, we can see multiplication through addition. Verses 4 through 11, we see the thread of that trickling through. Right away, we can see Silas and Timothy joining right off. He had left them in Macedonia. And, and from the passage, we don't know for sure why they came. It doesn't exactly state. But the comment about how Paul is now being occupied with the word points us to a belief that Silas and Timothy might have brought an offering from the other church plants. So that Paul can now focus his entire energy completely on witnessing. No longer did he have to do the tent making and not just work on Sundays preaching and teaching. He could do it all week long. But it's not just about the money, that addition. It's the people too. Now we've got Paul, Priscilla, Aquila, Silas, and Timothy all working together to proclaim the good news. And we see dozens getting saved and more and more are getting added to this. Titus Justice, Crispus, over and over again, we're adding more and the multiplication is growing. Of course, the Jews don't like this and they are kicking them out of the synagogue. I love the response when they get kicked out of the synagogue. They're like, well, okay, we'll just set up shop next door. There's a house next door to the synagogue. We'll just put our church there. Right? I've, I know some of you have probably been down through the Bible belt. And you see like church after church after church. And I've heard stories of churches being like 
across the street from each other. And one is like the First Baptist Church of St. Jamestonsville. And the second is like the Second Baptist Church of St. Jamestonsville. And they're like right across the street from each other. They're huge churches. And you're like, what's going on here? It was like, did the pastor just like get mad and left and planted a church in the same town across the street? Right? But hey, if it's good location, you might as well, right? What's a better location than right next to the synagogue? Everyone's got to come to the synagogue anyway. You might as well plant our church right next to it. Paul has an incredible ministry here, so much so that the synagogue ruler even becomes a believer, and many are getting baptized. It shows that when more people are working for the same mission, God can take that effort and multiply it in a mighty way. Two plus two does not always equal four equal four in gospel proclamation. Sometimes it equals 12 or dozens. And I, I talked about 2 Timothy 2, 2 earlier, but we can kind of see this graphic here as what it, this explains kind of what's going on in 2 Timothy 2, 2. It's not just Paul anymore. It's Paul and Timothy and others. And we see this multiplication effort going out across the nations. They can reach so many more people. They can do twice the work They can reach twice the people, three times the people, over and over, more people. The addition of people multiplies the gospel. In our next section, we can see multiplication through division, verses 12 and 17. To which some of you may be saying, like, well, wait a minute, Pastor Joey, that statement doesn't make sense. Because multiplication and division, those serve two opposite functions within the world of mathematics. You can't multiply by dividing. To which I say, I said it wasn't very good at math, okay? (laughs) But seriously, gospel multiplication doesn't work under the same rules as mathematical multiplication. So we see multiplication through division, but what is the division? It's, it's opposition. It's attacks from the Jews. But this is nothing new to our boys. They've experienced this in almost every single town they've gone into. Mockings, ridicule, attacks, beatings, imprisonments, all are becoming the norm for them. In verse 6, we saw it. And then here in verses 12 through 17, we see trials, beatings, attempting to stop the work of Paul and his team. But the incredible thing is that the division that the Jews are trying to cause only multiplies the gospel. My son Deacon and I were working on homework this past week, and he's working on long division. He goes, Dad, this, division, this long division stuff is tough. I said, yeah, buddy, I know it is. But I thought about that, and I was like, you know what? So is gospel division. Gospel division is tough stuff. It doesn't, it doesn't feel good for us to go through opposition and suffering and hurt. But if we press into it, the gospel has an incredible way to multiply. We can't, we can't make multiplica- or division happen. Like We can't force opposition into our lives. But if we press into it, it's incredible what the gospel can do. What the Jews don't realize is that the opposition and the division that they are trying to impose is like water on a grease fire. I know some of you are cooks in here, and at least a couple of you have been cooks for a while or chefs. And I bet over the years you've worked with interns and high schoolers or maybe just simply inexperienced workers, and you've had to do a fair amount of training. And maybe this hasn't happened, but I just imagine it has. Maybe it's even happened in some of our own homes, right? When all of a sudden you have a grease fire, and someone just wants to grab water because they see fire and they just want to grab water and throw on it. What is your response, right? 
No, stop, don't do that. Why? Because the water will spread the grease fire. It can actually explode on the grease fire. I was watching some really cool videos on YouTube with that this week, just making sure it happens. I was like, I've heard that happens, but let's see what YouTube says. Really cool videos of waters exploding on grease fires. That is what opposition and division is to the gospel. Opposition is like the water on the grease fire of the gospel. It will spread it and explode it in incredible ways. I've heard stories of people experiencing opposition or divisive people, people being berated and made fun of just for reading their Bible in public or maybe for sharing their faith with coworkers and another coworker starts berating them and mocking them. But if you stand strong in that, if you stand strong in your faith and you don't attack back and press hard on them, you just show love to them, to those who are berating you, the gospel can spread to those because people are watching. People are always watching bystanders. People just witnessing what's, what, how you're interacting with this. And if we can stand strong through that. I've I heard stories, again, of, of people being more willing to talk to my friends who were berated. And they were more willing to talk to them because of how they handled it. The graceful way in which they handled those attacks. We should expect division to come in our lives. And we should pray for God to use it to multiply the message. Now I can say that, and we can read this passage, and we can actually say like, well, yeah, we can see the division, we can see the opposition, but how can we actually know the gospel multiplied from those five verses? Well, in order to see the multiplication, we need to look at the next section and actually look at another book of the Bible. Um, so we'll move into the next section, but just be looking for this multiplication. Our next section, we, we see multiplication through subtraction, verses 18 through 23. Right now, some of you mathletes, right? You're just like going crazy. You're like, he just doesn't even understand math anymore. Like, but it's fun, right? Specifically, look at verse 18. Paul, Priscilla, and Aquila, they all leave. Now, you would think... When incredible leaders like Paul, Priscilla, and Aquila leave, that that would be the end. It's been a year and a half that they have been here. But with the public beating of Sosthenes, it's time for Paul and his friends to move on. But the gospel multiplication doesn't leave with Paul. We can see that by reading 1 Corinthians. Throughout that book, there are names that pop up throughout the book that aren't in this passage. And Paul over and over again refers to the church in Corinth as saints. Paul only refers to believers of Jesus as saints. And for all the messed up people and stuff going on in 1 Corinthians, they are still people who love and know Jesus. God, in 1 Corinthians, we see that God is blessing this church with spiritual gifts. He is raising up leaders. And they are reaching the city. Paul is clearly invested in the leaders in Corinth in the time that he was there so that the message of Jesus could continue to be preached and multiplied throughout the region. We need to understand that sometimes we, need, we may need to subtract from a situation. Right? We need to take a step back, maybe even pull ourselves out of it for a time. 
I know there have been times where I feel like I'm just like beating my head against the wall with some people I've tried to disciple. Where it's just like it just doesn't feel like they're taking the next step. But then I'll hear stories later on of them getting off to college and just being on fire for Jesus. And I'm like, praise God. Some people in our lives, we just keep saying the same things to them over and over again. We may just need to step back, subtract ourselves for a moment, just reevaluate our approach. Is it something I'm saying? Do I, need to, do I need to say something different, say it in a different way? Or maybe do I just need to step back and pray that God will put somebody else in this person's life? <laughs> I think of this and I think of youth conferences. I was a youth pastor for five years and took dozens of, or a, do, a dozen or more youth conference trips. Our students just got back from youth conference, and Shane did say kind of this happened a little bit with him too. It, it never fails. You know, I'd go to these trips with kids that I had been teaching and preaching to for like five, three to five years. We'd go off to this youth conference, and we'd be sitting there, and the pastor, like, the, the speaker, like, almost in passing, would say something like, and that's why you need to be reading your Bible, because it's God's Word. God gave it to us. We go to a small group afterwards, and I'd be sitting there with the students, and they're like, so what did, what did you hear? What did God speak to you from the message? And they're like, you know, I think I need to be reading this, because this is God's word. And I just want to look at them and like, scream. I'm like, I've been saying that for three years. Okay, praise God, you finally heard it. Like, but that's just, sometimes they just need a different voice saying the same things. That's why I truly love our preaching style here at Stonebridge. You aren't just hearing the same thing from me 48 times a year. You'd get really sick of my jokes and really sick of the things I talk about after 48 weeks a year. I say that because I get vacation. Like, I do get to leave sometimes. But all pastors get some. You don't make them preach 52 weeks a year. That's just awful. But here at Stonebridge, though, we get the blessing of a multitude of voices right here teaching us. Every week, we have somebody different speaking. And I, just, I love that. We, we all get those voices and thoughts and life, life stories and everything speaking into our lives. Lastly, in our last section, we can see multiplication through correction. Last for four, verse, four or five verses for today. Multiplication through correction. In that last section, we meet a new character to our storyline, but again, one that is recognizable to those of us who have gone through 1 Corinthians or if you've read 1 Corinthians. The name Apollos, you may recognize it. Apollos will be a huge asset to the missionary work. He is very knowledgeable. He's very eloquent. He's a natural leader. Verse 23 says that he is instructed in the scriptures. That's referring to the Old Testament. He was a Jew, so it's very possible. He had the entire Old Testament memorized. It says that he's from Alexandria, which was the center of educational training in the first century. People travel from all over the place to Alexandria to get training, to be a doctor, to be lawyers, to be philosophers. So he had one of the best trainings in the world at that time. Verse 24 says that he was fervent with the Spirit. The word for fervent here can also be translated as boiling with. It's a word used to like boiling water. Nowadays, we may say that he is on fire for Jesus. He is boiling up with the Spirit. But there's a problem. 
He didn't have the full gospel. It wasn't inaccurate. It was simply incomplete. Apollos had only heard what John the Baptist had said about Jesus. See, John focused on repentance of sin, and that's the first step, and that's accurate. But the whole message is to repent of our sins, to believe in Jesus, to accept him as our Lord and Savior. Paulus did not know about Jesus' life, his crucifixion, and his resurrection. Those are vital pieces to what we believe. Nor did he know about the coming of the Holy Spirit and the indwelling of it and how that could propel him. So what do Priscilla and Aquila do? They come into synagogue and they hear this guy teaching about Jesus, but it's not quite right. So they jump up and say, hey, you're wrong. Get off the stage. Boo. No, <laughs> they don't condemn him. They correct him. They explain the way of salvation to him. They didn't do it publicly. They lovingly invite him back to their house and explain the entire message of Jesus to Apollos. They see his potential, and they know what he will accomplish. I think about this idea of missing a piece, and I think about going to visit my mother-in-law in in southern Missouri. See, she lives in a a new community and a new housing development. And besides that, it's just southern Missouri. So, like, like, there isn't just great reception for phones and GPSs once you get, like, halfway through Missouri. The first time we went, it was rough constantly rerouting 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 and as we got closer we couldn't even find the location like it was just non-existent see the gps was out of date and they needed updated it was so bad we had to just like park and call my mother-in-law be like you got it we're at sonic come get us like there's no way we can even find you apollos had an old map And his old map had been accurate in his life, or in in the day that it was, the Old Testament was accurate. But he desperately needed a new map, a full map. And that map was supplied by Aquila and Priscilla. Because of this correction that Priscilla and Aquila did, the multiplication increases. We see that in verse 26. Apollos was able to argue in incredible ways with the Jewish leaders. And in verse 27, he heads out on his own missionary journey. The multiplication of the gospel cannot be stopped. Like I said in the beginning, we now have three missionary teams going forth with the gospel message. Plus, we see Priscilla and Aquila. Later on, we'll see that they start training up more and more leaders to be sent out. And so I thought, what can gospel multiplication look like? What, What could that look like? We can talk about it, but what is something that we could visually see to look like? And I found this really funny video. It's long. It's going to be like painfully long, horrible sound and graphics, but just, I love it. So I'm going to make you watch it. So. He's getting it. <laughs> yes. <laughs> this is like what it's this is like what it's like when I dance.
I know. This is like prom back in 2000, right? Here he comes. Oh, yeah. I said it was painfully long. That's fun, right? That's just... So you can thank me because it's actually twice as long. Like, eventually the whole festival is there where this guy was dancing at. I actually cut it when the majority comes. But um, what would it look like if we treat the gospel and our faith like that guy treated dancing, right? Sometimes it just feels like we're just off by ourselves just talking about our faith and talking about how much we love Jesus and just it just feels like we're all by ourselves and sometimes we just want to be like hey, just what's the purpose like I just want to stop but can you imagine the movement we have if we just stay consistent and we show that much excitement and joy for the gospel it can be infectious it can just multiply in incredible ways we have been talking about witnessing for several months now and and I know for a fact some of you have been out there, you've been inviting, you've been welcoming, you've been witnessing, but maybe you feel like you aren't getting anywhere. Maybe it just feels like every time you try to talk about it, it just isn't getting anywhere. So maybe you just need to add a little community, right? You just need to have some more people with you to talk about what life looks like and what the gospel is in your life, but just people to come alongside you and encourage you. Maybe, again, with that, you need to add, add a little addition to it. People to stand by your side and witness with you. Like I said, you can't really add division to your life, but you can add the point that you talk about it. You talk about the oppression and the hurt and the suffering, and you press into it. Maybe it's time you add a little subtraction to your witnessing. You step back and you reevaluate and just say, God, I don't, I don't know if this person is who you want me to reach. And if it's not, help me see that and I'll step back. But God, put somebody else in their life. And maybe you need to add a little correction. Like maybe you just don't have the full gospel. Maybe you're telling people how awesome Jesus is, but you're not getting them quite to the point of that they need to make a decision. It is so important for us to focus on multiplication in the church and the gospel multiplication. It is so important for us to be focused on making disciples who make disciples who make more disciples. And if we make disciple-making disciples through our small groups, through our women's ministries, through D6, through youth ministry, the ministry will grow as leaders are developed and groups multiply. So let's pray for multiplication to happen in an amazing way. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you. I thank you for, I thank you for the fact that you choose to use broken people to multiply your gospel. Paul wasn't perfect. Neither were Priscilla and Aquila. But God, you still use them in incredible ways. 
And so, God, I pray for our people. Help them to evaluate just what you are doing in their lives and, and just how they can reach people better. God, maybe it is a little multiplication that they just need to get. Maybe they need to add some community. They need to step back. They just need to correct their message. God, we pray that we can be a church that can just multiply the gospel throughout this community that so desperately needs you. God, I thank you for that. In your name we pray. At this time, we're going to...